Amen. Good morning. Wow. Thank you, Luke. I heard your voice. Good morning. Wake up, guys. We get a chance to read God's Word together, to study it together. This is it's not a boring time. It's a chance. For, well, maybe, maybe I'm boring. But that's fine. But don't hold that against God's Word. We get, to, we get to read His Word. We get to hear His truth. We get to hear what does He have to say to us. And then as God's people, we get to change our lives or be reminded, to be convicted of sin, to be encouraged. All of that is there in God's Word, and it's no different today. Working through the story of David and Bathsheba, David's sin has been exposed. His sin against the Lord has been brought to life to himself. He thought that he had gotten away with murder That his sin was committed in the dark, but God had actually seen it all. He thought it was hidden, but God knew what was going on and witnessed the whole event. And though David confessed and repented from his sin, and though God put away David's sin and spared his life, the child would still die. And though the Death of the child is difficult for us to wrap our minds about, so we hear like, ah, we get to get in God's Word, and we get to, we get to be encouraged, but there's difficult things in God's Word like this. Why would God put the sin of David upon David's son? That David didn't face the consequences, his son did. And we don't have an answer. It's, that's the most unsatisfying thing for us as human beings, is it not? Why would God do this? He doesn't tell us. But as we looked at last week, if we can't understand this or at least accept this, accept it in the sense of this is God's way of doing it, we can't accept it that God has put our sin upon His Son and sent His Son to death to pay the consequences for our sins. And so we have to stand in God's presence, know that He is just, He is right, And though we may not understand it, and His ways are beyond us, we know He is good. And that somehow, even through this situation in David's life, good is going to happen. The passage of Bathsheba, the the story of Bathsheba and David, and the death of this child, is not about David and Bathsheba and the child. It's about God's response to sin, even to the king that God has anointed. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. God cannot ignore sin. He cannot ignore the, as to use the words of, of chapter 12 of David's sin against God, the despising and scorning of God and his character and his word, that is what sin is. When we sin against God, we are despising and scorning God. And so it's a serious thing. A lot of times we just kind of, eh, I mean, it's bad. Like, no, we deserve death because of our sin. Even a little white lie, which to us is nothing. To God, it is everything. So in the midst of all of that, We get to this passage today, which is hard, but also we see that God is merciful and gracious. 
Last week, David was told the price he'd have to pay for his sin. This week, we see that in the midst of the suffering, suffering the consequences of his sin, David is also experiencing deep and wonderful, the deep and wonderful grace of the Lord. His, and what is grace? Grace is the unmerited, unearned, undeserved kindness and favor of God. David did not deserve God's grace. If he did, it would not be grace. Does that make sense? To put it in New Testament terms, he died for us even while we were enemies of him. We hated him and he died for us. Did he die for us because we were awesome? No, he died because he has grace towards us. Unmerited favor, unearned, undeserved kindness. Over the last chapter and a half, David's selfishness, his pride, and his arrogance leads him to the judgment of God, as it does with us. But today, David's humility leads him to God's grace. And so today we're going to ask three questions of this passage. What did David do? Why did David do it? And what was the result of that? Okay, so we're just going to work out what did he do? Why did he do it? And what was its result? So what did David do to humble himself? Well, first, we see in verse 16, David humbled himself by seeking God. Now, notice the stark difference between this and David's response when he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof. In that situation, he lingered. He entertained his own lustful desires, never once taking the time to actually seek after the heart of God, saying, okay, God, what do you want me to do in this? Which we all know the answer would be flee, run, turn your eyes, go away. But David did not do that. Here, though, with his newborn son on his deathbed, with the judgment of God through the words of David still, uh, through, through the words of Nathan, still ringing in his ears, David seeks after God on behalf of his son. So he seeks God. Secondly, how does he humble, what does he do to humble himself? He fasts and lays all night on the ground. Now, fasting is a sign of mourning, but it's also a sign of seriously dealing with the Lord. We see this in 1 Samuel 1, verse 7, where Hannah, who's the mother of Samuel, eventually, she's childless. Her husband's other wife has given her a really hard time, like really, really hard time. She's dealing with depression. What does she do? She fasts and she seeks the Lord. And she fasts until God answers her prayer. Now, we have to be careful here because fasting is not a tool that is to be used in order to manipulate God. If I just fast, then God will answer my prayer. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. What fasting does is it actually helps the one who is fasting to wholly and fully rely upon the Lord. Fasting removes something from me and then in order to receive or to be able to be, in the case of fasting, fulfilled, I don't fulfill myself in food. I fulfill myself in the Lord. 
It focuses me completely to trust in him, letting go of something that I hold dear, like food, and giving it to him and trusting in him. It's a, it's a tool to focus us, not to manipulate God. And that's what David does. He fasts. He puts all of his energy in his heart to lay himself before God and to lay himself on the ground. Now, that doesn't mean that he refused to sleep in a bed, that he wanted a really hard surface, just, you know, suffer a little bit. That's not what that means. He lays with his face to the ground all night long. In other words, I'm not going to do it here because I can't get up very easily, okay? He's on his face, prostrate, completely giving God, speaking to God, praying to God all night long, fasting. He's in a position, in a posture of humility. He's in a posture of submission to God. He is seeking the Lord. Hear my prayers. And the point of this is not to prescribe fasting and praying while laying down every time you want to seek the Lord. That's, that's not what this is about. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. Is it wrong? No. Do you have to do it? No. But the point of this is to, sh- to point out the dramatic change of David's behavior. Instead of pride, which led him to judgment, he showed humility. And that leads to the grace of God. So, why did David seek the Lord and humble himself? Well, he gives the answer, which I just gave to you. In verse 22, he says, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? David humbles himself before the Lord and hopes that God would graciously allow his son to live. Now, the temptation, again, is to see uh, David's humility as being manipulative and that if he fasted and wept enough, God wouldn't kill the child. That that is not what he's saying because that would not be grace. That would be earning something. In humbling himself, David expresses his desires for the child to live, but he leaves it in the hands of God. Humility also means submission to God. This is in your hands, God. You know my heart, and I'm going to cry out as long as I can until you give me an answer. And David received that answer. He received it in the death of his child. And that's the result of his humility. And you go, whoa, whoa, wait a second, Mark. That's not, you're saying... So if I humble myself, then bad stuff's going to happen. It's still going to happen? Well, maybe. Maybe. What's the result of David's humility? Well, the child still dies. And you would think that would drive David to despair, even deeper into depression, even deeper into sorrow. And even his own servants are afraid to tell David that the child has died for fear he's going to harm himself. And if this is how he reacts when the child is dying, then how is he going to react when he hears that the child is dead? But David, David doesn't lose his faith in God. He doesn't lose his trust in the Lord. He doesn't go on a rant about how God is so unfair and he is so unjust. Did you catch what he does? 
He hears of the child's death, his son's death, and he cleans himself up. He has lunch, and then he goes and worships the Lord. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, little side note here, disclaimer. This passage has been used to talk about how all children go to heaven. Um, and though I think you can argue that point with this, it's not really that strong of an argument because David's point is that his continuing to fast and weep is not going to bring the child back. The child is dead. And God has made that choice. Only in David's death will there be any chance of a reunion. Now that being said... It is super dangerous to found an entire doctrine or teaching on one verse. So don't do that. The point is not all children go to heaven. The point is David submitted to the Lord and he humbled himself in the hands of God. And he worshiped. He worshiped God. In the midst of his sorrow and his grief, he went right to the Lord. His humility wasn't a facade. It wasn't a mask. It wasn't, he wasn't trying to manipulate God. It was real. And in, in pain or in healing, good or bad, David is saying, God is still God and he is worthy to be praised. What does Job say? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if you've never read Job, just read the first chapter. He says that after a horrific events in his life that had nothing to do with him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But there is a, another result of David's humility. In the midst of death, there's life. I missed this at first. This is the, the joy of like commentaries and Bible notes. If you've got a study, uh, Bible study notes. This, this pointed me to realizing what those last verses in this section uh, mean. David comforts his grieving wife. He goes into her and, he, and she gives birth to a son. And they call him Solomon. And Solomon means peace. Shalom is peace. Shalomon, Solomon. And the Lord loved Solomon and sent David a message by Nathan. Now, we're not told the contents of the message. That's not important. What, what is important is that after receiving it, David gives Solomon another name. Did you know that? Did you know Solomon had a second name? And his name is Jedediah, meaning beloved of the Lord. And as my study Bible notes say, this is where these things come and happen. This is where he says, despite the sin of David and his descendants, the Lord's favor will not be withdrawn. The Lord's grace will not be withdrawn. Here's the future king in Solomon, the one who would continue the promise of God to David that a descendant will always be upon the throne of Israel. God's grace was not to be experienced through the newborn child, but through Solomon. Not because David wept, fasted and wept enough, but because God saw David's humility before him 
For God is a gracious God, and He is gracious to those who humble themselves before Him. God's, God is a gracious God to those who humble themselves before Him. Now, David's humility points us to the humility of Christ, to the true anointed king. And so we can ask ourselves the same question of Christ. What did Christ do to humble himself? So if you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps, we're going to get into Scripture here. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And this passage is, going to, is really going to answer our questions for us, especially the first two. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I always forget to put my glasses on. Hold on a second. So Paul is writing to believers, to Christians, the church in Philippi. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction and uh, affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Now here's, here's the key, verse 5. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not e count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What did Christ do to humble himself? He humbled himself by leaving the glory of heaven and making himself nothing. In other words, he became like you and me. Compared to God, we are nothing. We're nothing. Now, don't, don't take that as like a negative. That's actually a really good thing. <laughs> We're not God. He is perfect. We are not. He is eternal. We are not. He is all-knowing. I can't even remember what I said this morning. You, you see, compared to him, we're on two totally different planes. But, so don't take this as a negative thing. This is a, a good thing. And yet, Christ humbled himself by making him nothing. He became human. And being human, he then humbled himself by becoming obedient to the will of his Father, even to the point of dying upon the cross. And so let this soak in a bit. God who spoke all of the universe into being. We read that before we started singing, right? 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 1, as Jesus Christ. He created all of the universe. He ruled on the throne of heaven. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, not limited by time or space. And he condescended himself. He humiliated and humbled himself. Yes, that is the correct word, humiliated and humbled himself by becoming one of us and dying for us. Humiliated for us, that's a negative word. And in a sense, it is. He was in heaven, on the throne of glory, where the creatures are around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He let go of that and came here. He humiliated himself and humbled himself by becoming one of us and then dying for us. That's why the cross is called the humiliation of Christ. Now, why would Christ do such a thing? Well, according to Philippians chapter 2, to be our example of humility. As believers in Christ, we are to love others as Christ loved us. We are to be unified in Christ. We are to be faithful to Him and His Word. That's what it means to be unified in Christ. To be unified in Christ means that together we stand on His Word and on His truth, not does it make you feel good. It's unified in Christ, in Him, and we are to count others more significant than ourselves. And then the third question, what is the result of Christ's humility? It kind of goes along with the second of why He did it. Well, first, He revealed the greatness of the glory of God. This is the first and foremost, most important thing that we need to understand with the cross We talk a lot about how the cross saved us, and I'm going to get there in a second, because that's there, that's important. Without the cross, we're not saved. But first and foremost, Christ died for the glory of God. He revealed the greatness and the glory of the Father, and it says this in verse 10 and 11, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, we just read it, so that at His name every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. He did it all for His Father's glory. Our salvation is like the cherry on top. (laughs) It's like when we go to heaven, if you're a believer and you're going to heaven, you know what the best thing about heaven is? It's not the people you're going to see. It's Jesus. He's the reason that heaven is so glorious. The people that we will see who are believers that have died and passed before us, they're just the cherry on top. It's just the bonus. And that's a great, it's enjoyable. I can't wait to see my family and my friends who have passed and talk with them and worship God together. But that's secondary because the best thing about heaven is God. It's His Son, Jesus Christ. The result of Christ's humility of dying upon the cross, one is to give God the glory. And second, and it's important to remember that this is second, he saves those who by God's grace receive salvation from God's wrath for their sins. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. 
but it's the work of God. Lest any of us should boast, I've earned my salvation. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And all of that, the grace, the salvation, and the faith are all a gift of God. They're from Him. So that I can't stand here and say, if you would just get on your face and pray and fast, God would listen to you. Now that might be true. God may listen to you. But he didn't listen to David, if you want to look at it in that sense. But the child still died. And yet, David still glorified his God and worshiped him. And then he went home. <laughs> he went about his life, caring for his wife and comforting her. Now, I, I could show you if you really want to see. I, I have a, another whole section of the implications here, like the practical implications. What do we need to do? Humbling ourselves thinking of others, those kinds of things. But, but I, I think I don't want to make this about us. I had plans to go to James chapter 4, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Okay, it's like a whole other sermon. What does that mean to exalt? And all that, I don't, I don't want to do that. So pray for me. Vinny knows this. He always catches me. Yeah, you went away from your notes there, didn't you? Yeah. You dug yourself in a hole, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So pray for me. But this is not about us. Christ's humility, we receive salvation. We receive Him. But it's not about us. It's not about us. If God is gracious to those who humble themselves before Him, the natural definition of humility is not selfishness. <laughs> if you say, if I just humble myself before God, He's going to do what I want, that's not humility. That's manipulation and selfishness. Humility is letting go of my desires, is letting go of my wants, it's letting go of what I think is true and right and saying, but God, what do you say? What did you do? Why did you do it? Letting go of what I want. Still telling him like David did, God, save my son, save my son. But I'm putting it in your hands and whatever may happen, whatever may happen, I trust you because I know you are good. And I know you were gracious. And who knows? The grace of God might come to you and you might see and experience a joy beyond the hardship. Many of you have been getting emails about Pat um, who fell this last week and, um, and we're continuing to get updates and all that kind of stuff. So I don't, I don't want to go too much into that. But there, he's... he's going to have a rough time. This is not something that's small. Okay, he, he thought he was going to be paralyzed for the rest of his life. And praise God, he's got movement, but he's got a long road ahead. And the very easy thing 
for him or for us in a situation that's difficult is to then get mad at the Lord, fall into depression, to become angry with ourselves or become angry with the world around us, get angry with the situation, yell at God and say, if you were really God, you would have stopped this. But as God's people, it's important for us to remember in situations like that, and, and Pat needs to be reminded of this, as we all do, that everything is in the hands of God and we don't see the big picture. God says, He works all things for good. Now, usually we like to say, for my good, which means what I want. And He does work for my good because it's what He wants. And what He wants is always best for me. What's Pat's future look like? We don't know, but God knows. If you're going through a really hard time, whether that's spiritual, mental, physical, whatever, emotional, you're going through a super difficult time, you are down in the dumps, you are about ready to hit rock bottom. As a believer in Christ, hear these words. God works for good. For those who humble themselves, for those who love him, for those who trust in him, those who turn to him and know that he is in control. And by his grace, he will see us through this. Whether that means when he takes me into heaven, and I do Again, I'm, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but sorry, Luke, throwing you under the bus. This, you know, you old people, you're forgetting things, right? That is your future, young man. I'm sorry. It's, you're going to get there. And there's going to be a time, time in your life. Young people, listen to me. Little kids, listen to me. You think you're invincible. No, this is your future. You're going to be in pain, and there's nothing that you can do about it except... Go to God. The time may come where until the day that you are going to heaven and God is sending you there and bringing you home, you will be in pain. I hope not, but it's, it's very likely that's going to happen. That's what happens when your body starts to break down. And in that moment, when you can do nothing and the doctors can do nothing and medication can do nothing, who are you going to turn to? God. You should turn to God because by his grace, he will either heal you or he will take you home. And in either case, it's a good thing. Now, he might not take you home for a while. <laughs> Don't hear like he's going to kill you in this moment. But by his grace, he will always show his grace to his people. Because as his people, we have humbled ourselves. We don't trust and rely upon ourselves for our own salvation. We turn to him and we say, it's by your grace that we are saved. And we praise you. We praise you. This is about you, Lord. And that's, that's what I want us to think about as we take communion this morning. As we come to the table, we take the drink, and we take the, the bread, and we share it together. That as God's people, we, we sit here and we go, as we're waiting for everybody to get to their chairs, to sit here and think and contemplate and go, praise, praise God, I worship you, Lord. You have saved me by your grace. 
not because I'm taking communion, not because I go to church on Sunday morning, not because I'm such an awesome person, but because by your grace you have saved me. Now, Father, help me to humble myself and submit to you even more so I can receive and see and praise you for your grace because you are good and gracious king. You are a good and gracious God. And praise him for that. If you have not experienced that, if you're struggling right now, even as a believer, pray it still. <laughs> Just keep saying those, God, you are gracious. God, I'm, I'm at rock bottom, but I know that you are good and you were gracious. And so help me to see that. Help me to look at you and not the pain, not the sorrow, not the suffering, but you. And help me to experience your grace and your love your joy. I am your child. And if you have yet to give your life to Christ, then humble yourself. Let go of you and your desires. Seek God and he will save you and he will show you his grace. He promises it. He will show you. That doesn't mean he's going to fix everything in your life but it does mean that he will be with you always. So when you are ready, grab a cup, grab bread, sit at your seat, then together we will take communion as a church family. You don't have to be a member. You just need to be a believer in Christ. That's all we ask. And that you come and you sit down and we take it together and think and contemplate and give praise God to God for his gracious love and salvation. He shows grace to those who humble himself, humble themselves before him. And so we praise him for that. So come when you are ready.